morning, everyone. I want to encourage you to be turning over to John uh, chapter 10. If you would, we are going to continue our journey through the Gospel of John. So we are in John chapter 10, and we're going to cover verses 22 through the end of the chapter this morning. And there's a lot of material to cover, and yet again, I am just kind of blown away by the character and the nature of Scripture. You can read Scripture casually, and even casually gain a lot from it, but when you slow down and you take time to think critically through what Scripture is saying, there's so much there. In fact, from a preaching perspective, sometimes there's too much there. Uh, I want to get through this in, in one morning, but I could have easily broken this down into a series of lessons just on these 20 verses that we're going to look at this morning because there's such a wealth of, of information and it's so valuable to our faith here. So I want to encourage you to follow along in the scriptures. As we pick up in John chapter 10 in verse 22, John lets us know that a little bit of time has passed since the events of the previous several chapters. And so he says, then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter time and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's Colonnade. So what is the Feast of Dedication that happened in Jerusalem in the winter time? So far, John has, especially in the last few chapters, walked us through a year in the life of Jesus in his ministry and showed us how Jesus' ministry is relevant to the prominent Jewish festivals. And if you go back into the law, God gave them specific instruction. These are the festivals you will keep at these certain times of year every year. It provided kind of the annual ebb and flow of Jewish life throughout each calendar year. For example, in chapter 6, it was the time of the Passover, and Jesus gives a, a very relevant uh, lesson to the people who are listening regard what they were going to be eating at the time of the Passover. We talked about the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 7, and that leads us all the way up to the first half of chapter 10 and, and how Jesus' ministry related to the Feast of Tabernacles or booths. And then we find ourselves here in this passage getting to winter time, which is the Feast of Dedication. Now, the Feast of Dedication is different because you won't find a word about it in the Old Testament Scriptures. There's nothing in the law about the Feast of Dedication. So what was it? Well, it was a celebration regarding at that point in time, something more contemporary to them when they were alive in the time of Jesus, and that's this. There's a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, one of Alexander the Great's successors, and he wanted to unify his empire, and he thought, well, the best way to do that is to eliminate the plurality of religions that exist among my people and get it down to one just state-sponsored form of religion, And so in order to do that, he outlawed everything that wasn't that state-sponsored form of religion, and that included, obviously, Judaism. And so it became illegal to practice Judaism. It was illegal to go to the temple and offer sacrifices. It was illegal to keep the Sabbath. It was illegal to keep Torah. It was illegal to have your baby boys circumcised. He made it so that it was impossible to be a law-abiding Jewish Person. And I would encourage you strongly to take time this week to read First and Second Maccabees. You can find those online, free examples of them. I encourage you to read them because it gives you the history that, that leads up to what they celebrated at um, the Feast of Dedication. Antiochus was a brutal man. 
And you can find details about the things that he did to the Jewish people, how he killed many of them, how he burned a lot of the city in the walls in Jerusalem, how he went into the temple and took possession of the temple, eventually leading up to a sacrifice on the altar in the temple to Zeus. And you can imagine that act of desecration, what that would have done to the mindset of the Jewish people to have sacrifices being made in God's temple to a false god was humiliating, it was disheartening, it was heartbreaking to the Jewish people. So on the heels of all this brutality that was brought against the Jewish people by Antiochus, there was a rebellion that began, a grassroots rebellion, and it was done by the Maccabean family, the Maccabeus family. And Judas had kind of inherited this rebellion from his father. His father was one of the priests serving in Jerusalem. And Judas Maccabeus, who went by the nickname The Hammer, by the way, the Jewish people led by him fought a truly guerrilla-style war against Antiochus' army. They were vastly outnumbered. And again, you can find recordings of this in First and Second Maccabees. But in spite of the fact that they were outnumbered, eventually they, prepa- they prevailed. They were victorious against uh, the invading army. And what that led to eventually was the 25th, excuse me, 25th day of Kislev in the year 164 BC, the Jews reconsecrated the temple and began sacrifices to Jehovah God once again. This was a monumentous occasion for them because now the the temple was no longer occupied by foreign forces. It wasn't being desecrated by sacrifices to foreign gods. It was Yahweh's temple yet again. And they were able to keep Torah. They were able to keep the law. They were able to preserve what it was that made them law-abiding Jewish people. And they reconsecrated the temple on that day. So... Judas declared that from that point forward, at that time every year, a celebration should be kept honoring that event. And so we call that Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the celebration of the rededication of the temple during the time of the Maccabean Revolt. It lasts eight days. And just so you know, this year, it begins this Friday. This coming Friday is the first full day of Hanukkah. So Hanukkah is not Jewish Christmas. Okay, that is not what Hanukkah is. All right? Hanukkah is something very important to the Jewish people. It was relatively new in the time of Jesus, but we find Jesus in Jerusalem keeping that festival the way all the Jews kept the festival at that time. A festival not in the law, but something good and worthy of celebrating. So that's where Jesus is. That's what the Feast of Dedication is all about. We pick up in verse 24. It says, The Jews who were gathered around him while he's walking in Solomon's colonnade, said to him, and they say this aggressively, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, just tell us plainly. And another way of translating this is something along the lines of how long are you going to drive us insane? You're driving us crazy here. Just come out and say it. Are you the Messiah or not? This is Jesus' response. I did tell you, but you did not believe. I want, to th- I want you to think critically about his response here for a moment. In what ways did Jesus already tell them plainly that he was the Messiah? Because at least recorded for us in scriptures, nowhere is it found Jesus standing before a large crowd of people and saying, I, Jesus of Nazareth, am the Messiah you have been waiting for. He does not say that. 
And yet, according to him, he has been clearly and plainly stating this whole time that that's who he is. They just weren't listening or paying attention. So in what way has Jesus clearly articulated his identity? What is the answer to that question? Well, I think it's twofold. Number one, I would encourage you to think back on the I am statements. We have not gone through all of them yet as we've journeyed through John's gospel, but we've made it through a few. And you think about the way that Jesus frames these statements. All of them are statements regarding his identity. I am the bread of life, he says in John chapter 6. I am the light of the world, he goes on to say in chapter 8. Earlier in chapter 10, we talked about this the last time we were in John. I am the door of the sheep, and then later on, I am what? The good shepherd. These I am statements are all made to clearly communicate who he is, specifically his connection with the Father. That he's not just a prophet who's shown up to do what prophets do. There's something very unique about him. He's able to make statements that only God can make because of his oneness with the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But also this. He goes on to say in verse 25 here, the works that I do in my Father's name testify about me. This is specifically what he's getting at. Not anything he said, but what he had done. I've already told you who I am. If you were to pay attention to what I've done, you would know the answer to that question. The works that I do in my Father's name testify about me. Now the way John structures his gospel is that, remember when he is wrapping up his gospel at the end, he says, I could have included a lot of different things, but I talked about these things specifically so that you may know that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing you might have life in his name. He talks about how all the books in the world couldn't contain all the things Jesus did. So John is very selective in the things that he records, and he records for us seven signs Miracles, as we like to call them today, but signs in John's language that show who Jesus was. As we walk through these signs, we have covered all but the last one. And I would suggest to you that mostly what John is doing from a literary perspective here in chapter 10 is setting up the last and final sign that Jesus is going to perform in the following chapter when he raises Lazarus from the dead. But already, looking back on John's gospel, what have we seen Jesus do. These are the signs John records. In chapter 2, he turns water into wine. In chapter 4, he heals an official son who has fallen ill. In chapter 3, he heals the man who is lying by the pool because he was crippled and unable to walk. In chapter 4, he feeds the 5,000 with just a little bit of bread and fish. In chapter 5, uh, excuse me, later on in chapter 6, he walks on water. In chapter 9, he heals the man who was born blind from birth. So we've seen these six signs already. We're going to see the final one. And I think John is including this here in his narrative because he's hinting at what is yet to come. The final sign from Jesus. But Jesus is reminding them of these things. He didn't do them in secret. Everybody was talking about these things. And he says, look, you know the answer to the question you're asking. Am I the Messiah? You know based just on the things that I have done. They testify to who I am. But, he goes on to say, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. That's the real problem here. 
You don't believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. In other words, Jesus' sheep should be easily identifiable by the fact that they follow his voice and they follow him. That's what makes them his sheep. So the reason they're asking this question, quit driving us crazy, just tell us plainly, the reason they're asking that question is not because Jesus has failed to provide a clear answer or ample evidence. He has done both through what he said and through what he has done. He has provided the answer. The problem is not that he's failed to answer the question. They're asking the question because they are not his sheep. His sheep listen to his voice and follow him. Now imagine the frustration on their behalf as he tells them that. They're trying to just get him to come out and say, I am, not the, Messiah, or I am the Messiah, and instead, he doesn't do anything like that. He just says, I've already given you the answer. And if you were of my sheep, you'd already know. And I imagine they're very frustrated at this point in time. But I have a question for you. Thinking about what it is that makes someone one of his sheep. And again, I think I mentioned this before a couple weeks ago when we started in chapter 10. Sheep has become almost a derogatory term. Oh, you sheep. Just follow people, you sheep. Right? There's no greater, greater compliment to pay a follower of Christ than to call them a sheep. Because we're following the voice of the shepherd. What advantage is there to being one of Christ's sheep? What is it that turns it from a derogatory into a compliment? What is the benefit in being a follower of Jesus? And I want you to think about what he says in this following passage. In verses 28 and 29, he says these following things. I will, number one, do what? Give them eternal life. I will give them life, not just any kind of life, but life eternal. In other words, it is life without limit and life without end. We tend to think about eternal life purely in like a, a, a time-related, linear kind of thinking, that it starts here and it never ends as far as time is concerned. But eternal life isn't just about time. It's about the blessings that come with it. It is life to its fullest. It is a different kind of life. A different way of being alive. I give them eternal life and they shall never, what? Perish. They shall never perish, he says. Furthermore, no one will snatch them out of my hand. If you think about this shepherd analogy, no one from the outside has the power or the strength or the skill required to come in and take my sheep away from me. No one can do that. No one by force an act of aggression is going to take my sheep away from me. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And then the most beautiful part of all this is Jesus isn't saying, I'm acting alone in this. He goes on, he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Once you belong to God, no one can take you away from him. If you are looking for something positive to cling to in your life right now, if you are looking for something good, if you are looking for some hope, it's right here in this passage. It reminds me of what Jesus says later on in John chapter 17 as he's praying what we sometimes call the high priestly prayer. This is immediately before his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion. As he prays in those last free moments of his life, who is on his mind? His followers. 
his disciples, his sheep, the ones God had given to him. And this is what he says. He recognizes, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. His concern is for his disciples after he leaves. What will become of them? Holy Father, he asked, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, listen to what he says, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, referencing whom? Judas. And he says, that happened so that scripture would be fulfilled. That was no accident. That's exactly what was going to happen all along. But the ones you gave me to protect, Father, I protected. And now I'm handing them over to you. Continue to protect them after I leave. You think about that kind of shepherd that we serve. To me, this just takes us back to Romans chapter 8. I know I reference this passage a lot, but I'm going to do it again this morning. Because it's so good. It's so good. I don't know if I ever told you this before. If I have, forgive me. The longer I'm here, the longer I'll start to repeat stories, I'm sure of it. So just nod your head and, oh, that's good. Uh, when I was, I think, third grade, I had a project to do. I don't even remember what the project was, but I remember making it. I can remember spending a lot of time on it with my mom's help. And I drew a picture of the world, and I wrote underneath, if God is for us, who can be against us? And I just remember as a child not fully understanding all the theology behind that, obviously, but clinging to that reality and tying it, even as a young person, to my identity. All I knew is that I belong to my God, and if God is for me, who could be against me? And that's what I wanted to share with my class in third grade. So, class, I'm going to share this with you this morning. So let's pick up in Romans chapter 8. If you would, turn over there and follow along with me. If not, just listen as I read along. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This is exactly what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 10. If I hold you in my hand, he says, no one is going to take you away. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us? From the love of Christ shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, Paul writes, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to do what? Separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you say, Amen. This is who we are. If you are one of His sheep, this is where you reside in His perpetual protection. Think about this. Jesus is the modeled shepherd, right? That's what he already said. 
I am the door of the sheep, but I am also what? The good shepherd. I talked about how another way of thinking about that is the model shepherd. He is the exemplary shepherd. There's no one better at shepherding than him. If you're going to be the model shepherd, if you're going to excel at being a shepherd, then what is the one thing you have to do perfectly? It's protect your sheep. At all costs, you protect your sheep. Listen, if we worry, and I know many of you do, if we worry that we are in constant danger of being lost, what does that say about our opinion of Jesus' shepherding skills? No one will take us away. No one will snatch us out of the hand of the Son or the hand of the Father. And sometimes in the church, we bristle at conversations like that because we say, ooh, doesn't that sound a little bit too much like, I don't know, once saved, always saved? And I would just say in response to that, that our theology cannot always be only reactionary. We can't say because these guys taught that, we have to, we have to in reaction, go as far away from that as we can. Yes, you can leave the care of the shepherd, but while you are in the care of the shepherd, no one is taking you away from the hand of the Son or the hand of the Father. Period. Full stop. We can't be so afraid of saying something that's wrong that we forget to proclaim with boldness what we know is good and true and right. Amen? We serve a good, good Father, don't we? I and the Father are one. Jesus goes on to say, and it's this statement that is the center point of this whole text. I and the Father are one. You want an answer to who I am? Here it is. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. We've already seen they've made up their mind. They need to put him to death. They need to put an end to this man's public ministry. This sets them on edge to the point that, again, they pick up stones to stone him. Now, why? You can take that statement, I and the Father are one, and you can reduce it to, to something kind of harmless and say, oh, all he really meant was that he's like united in purpose and intent with the Father. Well, he was, absolutely, but he means something more than that, doesn't he? And that's obvious by the way that they react to what he said. They know he means something more than that. They pick up stones to stone him, and I love, listen, I love my Lord. I love the way he responds to his opponents in all of the Gospels. But I think this might be my favorite response ever. As they're picking up stones to stone him, he says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? For which of my good works are you going to put me to death right now? And I just, wouldn't you love to be back in those scenes and see kind of the look on their face and the way maybe they step back and think? But this is their response. We're not stoning you for a good work, preacher, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. They know what he's saying. And so this whole thing is just them fishing for an excuse to put him to death. When they say, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah or not? They just want him to say those words so they've got a reason to go after him. But it's not Jesus' time yet, is it? And he's not going to play into their hands. 
we're going to kill you for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Now, Jesus does something very interesting here, and I want to be totally honest with you. This is a challenge. It's a challenge for me. I'm sure it'll be a challenge for you. I'm going to do my best in just a few minutes to walk you through this. I just want to tell you, if anything I say here piques your interest and you want to study this further on your own, please come and see me afterwards, and I'll point you to some resources that I hope will be helpful for you. You can ask Robin. I've, I've worried about this for a while now, trying to, trying to present this in a way that's helpful for you and doesn't just make you go, what in the world is he on about, Okay. But this is the challenge. So Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? He is quoting directly from Psalm 82, and specifically the sixth verse of the 82nd Psalm. Now let's go back to that Psalm together. I'm going to read it in its entirety. It's short, but I want to show you the Psalm Jesus is quoting from. The Psalm itself, if you're not familiar with it, might make you go say, What now? It's an interesting Psalm. Psalm 82, God presides in the great assembly or divine council, as some translations have. He renders judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked, defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked? The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And then here's the verse specifically he's referencing. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High, which is one of the terms used for God the Father. But you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. What's going on in this psalm? Okay, we've got this scene where God is taking his place among the divine council. And he's holding them in contempt. He's bringing judgment against them because they have not brought justice to the earth like he wanted them to be doing. The question is, who are the individuals that he is addressing in this psalm? And the reason that's important is because of the verbiage that's used as he addresses them. How does God himself address these individuals that are gathered around him. As what? Gods. Now, I'm reading from the NIV. If you are too, you can see it's here on the screen next to me. The NIV is trying to do what all these translations do, which is give us some help in trying to sort out what's going on here. And so the NIV puts gods in quotes. Like, God is using it sarcastically here. Okay, But that's just an interpretive choice on behalf of the NIV uh, uh, interpreting. Uh, <clears throat> The council of people who interpreted the NIV made that choice. They recognize that there's difficulty here in trying to figure out what's going on. Who in the world would God be referring to as gods? The word there, by the way, is Elohim. It's the most common word used in Hebrew scripture for gods. But here, clearly, the word is being used for someone other than God the Father. Right? God is addressing someone other than himself... And referring to them as gods, he says it in verse 1, and then again in verse 6, I said, you are gods, you are all sons of the Most High. So what do we do with that passage? Well, I'll give you two options. The most common way to deal with this is that these gods that, Jesus, or that God is referring to here are Israelites, either the Israelite nation as a whole or most likely leaders and rulers and judges of the Israelite nation. And God is holding 
them in contempt for not carrying out his judgment the way that he wanted. There's some difficulty in that, though. Another suggestion made popular by the late Dr. Michael Heiser and his grown in popularity recently is that God is not addressing humans here, but his divine counsel, these spiritual beings, the host of heaven, as they're referred to in other passages in Old Testament scripture, that are gathered around him, that are responsible for interacting with humans in the earth in ways that God has dictated to them. Now, either way, what is Jesus doing with this passage? I think what Jesus is doing very clearly is he's saying, look, it was appropriate at some point for God to refer to someone other than himself as gods and as sons of the Most High. So if it was appropriate at any other time to do that, why is it now inappropriate for me to refer to myself as a son of God? If he called them gods, Jesus says, to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about, so this is his argument, if it was ever appropriate for any other being besides God the Father to be referred to as God, and specifically sons of God, sons of the Most High, then how would it be inappropriate for me, and listen to what he says about himself, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why do you then accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son. And I want to show you something Jesus does here. When he refers to himself as the one whom the Father set apart as his very own, what the NIV translates here as set apart is the word consecrate. Consecrate. To take something and set it apart and make it holy. Now what are the Jews celebrating at this very moment when he's speaking to them? The Feast of Dedication. When the Israelites in their rebellion kicked out hostile forces and re-consecrated the temple. They removed all of the foreign objects that were there and made the temple again a place set apart for God. And specifically a place set apart and consecrated for God to dwell among his people. I think with a wink and a nod here. Jesus is yet again, like he did back in John chapter 2, connecting himself with the temple, the place where God dwells among his people. But the point is clear. If it's ever been appropriate for the terminology gods or sons of the Most High God to be used for any other created being, then it's most appropriate for me, the one set apart and sent by the Father, in other words, if you are fishing for a reason legally to put me to death and you've landed on blasphemy, you're going to have to do better than getting mad at me for referring to myself as a son of God because that argument is not going to hold water. And he goes on and he says, Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father, pointing them again back to the works. Listen, the things I have done, is his argument, can only be done by the Father himself. You have to account for the works that I have done. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. 
I and the Father are one. This is your answer. You just don't see it because you're not paying attention to what I'm doing. The works speak loudly. So again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Again, this is his timeline he's working on. This is his timeline. His opponents will not lay a hold of him and will not put him to death until he has decided it's appropriate for that to happen. So real quickly, last couple verses here, and we'll bring this lesson to a close. It says, then Jesus went back across the Jordan, so he's leaving Jerusalem now, goes back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. And they said, though John, this is John the Baptist, never performed a sign. John was not a miracle worker. John was a preacher. Though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in him. And I love what John does here because John, the author John, takes us all the way back to the beginning of his gospel and reminds us yet again of what John said. What did John say exactly and why are people recalling this now? And I think this ties in perfectly with the whole context here as people are yet again wanting a direct answer to Jesus' identity. Who is this man? Let me remind you of what John said, John the Baptist, back in John chapter 1. This was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah, John said. But he goes on to say this. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this reason I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. I came for a purpose, to show you who Messiah is. And I'm telling you right now, this is him. This is the one I was talking about. This is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And he goes on and he says this. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. The man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I have testified that this is God's chosen one. So what is the answer to the question that this text starts off with? Tell us plainly, plainly, are you the Messiah? And Jesus' answer is what? I've already told you. You just didn't listen because you're not my sheep. My works scream loudly that I am the Messiah. And then as John wraps this up, he reminds us there's one more voice you need to listen to. The voice of John the Baptist who told you at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry who he was. This is God's chosen one. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. And so in a brilliant way, John does what he continues to do in his gospel. He invites us into the story and asks us to put ourselves in this story. Who are we? Are we like those across the Jordan who remember the words of John and conclude he is the Messiah? Or are we those not among his sheep like the Jewish leaders who just continue 
to pester him with the same question because we're not paying attention to what he's done and we're not listening to what he said. Are you one of his sheep? How do you know you're one of his sheep? Because his sheep do what? They hear his voice and they follow him. I invite you this morning, if you are not one of his sheep, to listen to his voice and to make that first step into following the Messiah. Once you are in the hands of the Son, in the hands of the Father, there is no better place to be. The protection they offer you is unparalleled. If you're looking for hope, if you're looking for peace, if you're looking for a reason to be confident, stop looking inwardly because this will not give you confidence. But he will. Be confident in the never-ending goodness and grace and mercy and love of the Father as shown to us by the one he sent. What can we do to serve you this morning? Please let us know. Let's stand and let's sing this final song together. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, O oh my soul, worship his holy name. Sing like never before, O oh my soul, I'll worship your holy name. The sun comes up, it's a new It's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, O oh my soul. Worship his holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul, I'll worship your holy name. You're rich in love and you're slow to anger, your name is great and your heart is kind. For all your goodness I will keep on singing Ten thousand reasons for my heart to find Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, O oh my soul Worship His holy name Sing like never before I'll worship your holy name. And on that day, when my strength is failing, the end draws near, and my time has come, still my soul will sing your praise unending. Ten thousand years and then forevermore. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, O oh my soul. Worship his holy name. Sing like never before, O oh my 